Hello and welcome to episode 69 of On Liberty. Live from, well, I was going to say live from the Centre for Independent Studies, but it is in a way live from the Centre for Independent Studies. It's actually my backdrop here at home in Sydney. I'm your host, Tom Switzer, standing in for my colleague, Salvatore Babones. It's always great to have your company. Now, today on the show, Neville Bonner, our nation's first Aboriginal Australian parliamentarian. He was a Liberal senator in the 1970s and early to mid-1980s. He died in 1999. Bonner came to the Senate 50 years ago last month, and he gave his maiden address to Parliament 50 years ago this month. Sean Jacobs is the author of a new biography on Neville Bonner, and it's published by our friends at Connor Court. G'day, Sean. G'day, Tom. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's our pleasure. And I should stress from the outset, Sean, that you uh, wrote an essay on Neville Bonner in the CIS, now defunct, in-house magazine called Policy, correct? That was about 2013. That's right, Tom. Yeah, so it was probably my first um, published piece on, on Bonner and not long after I actually discovered his story. And, and you know, in that, I, I really teased out um, some of the, I guess, self-help traits or those resilience elements of Bonner's story um, and applied them to sort of contemporary lessons um, and then just picked some of those up and I've applied some of those in the new biography I've put together but wrapped around a bit of the history at, at the time. But, yes, Tom, has written in the wake of discovering um, or first coming across Bonner's story and his amazing story and I think an undertold one as well. Indeed. Well, as I said, it's been 50 years ago since he came to Parliament, our first Aboriginal parliamentarian. Take us back to 1971, Sean. Yeah, sure, Tom. So this was a, an interesting time in Australian politics. Um, this was four years, of course, after the 1967 landmark referendum um, on Indigenous Australians. Um, you know, understandably, there was a bit of a, an atmosphere of, of radicalism or activism that existed at the time, especially around the Indigenous uh, rights movement. But Bonner was on a bit of a different trajectory. Um, so he had um, recently joined or recently headed up the One People of Australia League, which was a, a Brisbane-based assimilationist and integrationist organisation. It was really um, founded on the principle um, of building a a cohesive society and assimilation and integration again uh, for Indigenous Australians into mainstream Australia. He joined, uh, formally joined the Liberal Party in the late 60s, and I'm sure we'll get around to that. Um, but really, Bonner was um, had spent most of his life until then as a, as a very much a blue collar man. He famously said that he worked every job known to man um, throughout northern New South Wales and central and outback Queensland. Um, and, you know, he, he certainly followed an interesting route to Parliament. So actually, um, up until the 60s, um, or late 1960s, he was actually a bridge carpenter um, working for the Morton Shire Council. So a very interesting story, but interesting times as well. And a decent life before he became a senator in 1971. He was born in 1922 under a tree. That's right, Tom. So born into a very humble circumstances. Um, as you know, born under a tree on Eukeriba Island, which is in uh, northern New South Wales, right on the mouth of the Tweed River. And Bonner actually said that it was a miracle that it survived uh, those days when, you know, you look back or when you think about some of the things that were taking place around there at the time. 
Um, so he moved to Lismore at a young age um, with his, his brother, Henry. Um, he never met his English, his English father. Um, it was mixed race. Um, but, you know, looking back um, on this time, and it was very difficult circumstances, um, there was kind of a, a um, sort of humorous kind of reflection with the arrow of time. Um, he actually, Bonner spent most of his life thinking he was born in 1917 and not 1922. He only discovered this actually in 1970 after having to fill out his Senate uh, paperwork and returning to Lismore um, to uh, find his birth records. Um, so it, I think it actually put him back under the age of 50. So it's kind of the, the problem that you want to have, especially probably around that age, is uh, getting five years back. He was, on, he was five on, years younger than he thought he was. <laughs> that's right. So, gosh, um, yeah, it, pretty pretty um, good, to, good to know. But, yes, as you know, Tom, pretty humbling um, conditions and, you know, being born under a tree to then becoming um, an Australian senator or federal senator for Queensland. What an incredible story. Yeah, you say his mother, he lost his mother at an early age. And as you say, he, he never met his English dad. So he was pretty much reared by his grandmother. Tell us more about that. That's right. So Tom, he, Bonner's mother, Julia, passed away in around 1933. Um, so his grandmother, grandmother, Granny Ida, um, ended up um, raising him. Bonner said that actually um, everything that he, he was going to achieve or everything that he achieved um, was really down to his grandmother, Granny Ida's guidance. Um, whenever you hear Bonner speak, of course, you, and a lot of people comment on this, that you really um, hear his eloquence in his words and that really was down to his, his grandmother's uh, correction mm. and pronunciation and that discipline as well about being able to speak well um, and speak and have a good command of of English, and I think that's really testament to her uh, discipline and her guidance at those formative early years in the 30s, and especially when considering that Bonner had, um, you know, very limited formal schooling. He only had about 10, 10 months at Bow Desert State School um, in Queensland um, to, to draw from. Contrary to what you'll hear from advocates of identity politics and those who subscribe to cancel culture, Racism self-evidently was a far bigger problem uh, in the world in the 1920s and 30s uh, than it is today. That is self-evident. So Bonner, obviously, growing up, would have copped racism. Tell us about his experience with racism, Sean. Yeah, no, that's a really good point, Tom, and I think you really see that in, in Bonner's story. Um, actually, at the start of the book, I actually write um, of a really um, quite... Um, harrowing instance of Bonner's first taste of school. Um, so he was in Lismore. Um, him and his brother Henry had been offered an opportunity to attend South Lismore School um, and Bonner's mother, Julia, not having anywhere near enough money for school uniforms, had to basically fashion them um, from inside out, um, calico bags, sacks, essentially. And so the boys presented to school at about eight or half past eight in the morning. And then by about 9.30, so after about an hour, half the school had cleared out. Um, word had gone viral, uh, at least by 1930 standards, that there were two 
black boys in the school and parents had, had quickly come to spirit their kids away. And it's a very heartbreaking um, story. But, um, you know, there were plenty more examples like that that existed throughout Bonner's life. And as you know, Tom, these were real instances um, of, of discrimination, racism, and of course, segregation as well. But I think it sort of speaks to that, again, that, that level of resilience to keep sort of persisting, um, regardless of the circumstances that he found himself in, and um, a testament to a great story as well, Tom. Indeed, indeed. Now, back to the late 60s, early 70s, uh, when he fills this Senate vacancy, uh, you mentioned before he was becoming more politically aware. Now, he supported the anti-communist cause, Christian causes. He was a Catholic. Uh, tell us about those philosophical influences on his life in the mid to late 60s, Sean. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, so he um, had a conservative disposition or a conservative philosophy. I think a lot of that had actually been shaped um, over time. So he was a fierce individual. So he'd lived, you know, a, a very frontier sort of lifestyle. Um, and he was, um, you know, had, he actually arrived at becoming a liberal um, through, um, you know, an, an amusing instance in 1967. And we can touch on that in a second. But I do think that if you look at um, Bonner's uh, life, it really lines up well with liberal principles in the sense that, you know, being an individual, uh, being um, pragmatic about certain questions, um, the religious identity perspective, I think, had really um, become apparent because religion was essentially Bonner's um, pathway to assimilation and integration and building skills. Um, and I think as well, uh, when you look at, for example, um, you know, civic discourse and respect for individuals and respect for different points of view. Bonner had um, really spent a lifetime, actually, up until the late 60s, um, really uh, learning or understanding different points of view, being on, the diff on a different perspective on, or, you know, actually um, having a different perspective on different social issues and those sorts of things, uh, whether it was capital punishment, uh, whether it was the Springbok tour um, in the early 70s, and actually learning to understand different points of view and and different and respect those as well. So it, it, he was a conservative. Um, you know, it, it was um, influenced a lot by his religious faith to a degree, but also his life as well, Tom. Yeah. And he fills a, a Senate vacancy in 1971, August of 71, Bill McMahon's Prime Minister, um, and um, he, how did he get that, uh, the, the Senate vacancy uh, in 1971? Because remember, he's yeah, a first Aboriginal yeah. Australian to, to be in Parliament. How did Neville Bonner, of all people, fill a Senate vacancy? Yeah, so it's actually um, quite interesting, Tom. So he had um, actually put his hand up on the Senate ticket for the 1970 um, Senate, federal Senate election. Um, and he was third on the ticket. So he knew that it was quite an unwinnable position, but Bonner was pretty blase about, about putting his, his hand up. It seems that he actually made that decision um, at a cocktail party down the Gold Coast uh, one night when he was balancing a beer in one hand and, and prawns in the other, he said. Um, but what had, what had actually happened was that people kept coming around asking him when it would be his turn to run. So he just decided to say, hey, look, I'm going to put my little throw my hat in the ring. So he was, um, you know, pretty blase about that 1970 um, run. But um, he did get um, a lot of name recognition or name profile at the time. So being third 
on the ticket. Um, he wasn't successful, so the two ahead of him um, went through. But then about um, six months later, um, in early 71, as you know, Tommy's fortunes um, turned a little bit. So Senator uh, Dame Annabel Rankin was appointed to as a um, High Commissioner to New Zealand, um, and then uh, that created a casual set of vacancy. So uh, Bonner ended up um, filling that. And I think, you know, I write in the book that for the first time in his life, he actually felt entitled. And I don't think he was too far off here because um, you go back only a matter of months and he was naturally the next choice in line with the two other Senate candidates um, ascending the year before. He was naturally the, the right choice. So it was a historic moment in 71 when he filled that, that casual vacancy. But his path leading up to it was quite an interesting one and very opportune, but um, you know, one that I think that's that we look back on kind of fondly. <laughs> and you make it very clear that he was proudly, unapologetically a liberal. Tell us about that story in 1967 when he's handing out votes, had a vote cards on the Indigenous referendum, and he's experienced with one Bill Hayden. <laughs> That's right. So this is an interesting story, and I did just flag it before, but um, whenever Bonner was actually asked why he became a Liberal, um, he, he recounts this story that took place in 67. So, Tom, it was an Oxley polling booth, um, which is in the west of Brisbane, and as you know, he was hand, uh, Bonner was handing out how-to-vote cards for Liberal mates, so he wasn't a card-carrying member at all at the time of the Liberal Party. Um, and uh, Bill Hayden, who was then the member for Oxley and, and Labor, uh, the Labor member for Oxley, rather. The future Labor leader the... as well, future Labor leader. That's right. Yes, that's right. So, yeah, yeah no, correct. And and um, he, hop, you know, so Bill Hayden hops out the car and sees Bonner standing there handing out um, how to vote cards for the Liberals. And he goes up to him, uh, goes up to Bonner and goes, oh, what the heck are you doing handing out for this lot? Um, we do more for you lot than the bloody other lot do. So Bonner was really actually taken back by that because, um, you know, he felt that how you look uh, shouldn't determine how you vote. And, yeah. um, you know, that that um, evening Bonner actually um, approached his mates and said, give me the paperwork, and then he became uh, that evening a card-carrying member of the Liberal Party. But, yeah, look, I, there is a bit more philosophy guiding Bonner than that, um, and then, then that story actually lets on, and I do unpack a little bit of that in the book. But it's a, it's an amusing instance of how he actually became a member of the party. But it's also a reminder that many people on the left ideological spectrum crudely think that people of colour, of different ethnic backgrounds, will be more attracted to left or centre causes. And it's such a crude way of, of viewing people's political views. And you get this a lot in the United States. If you're African-American and you're a conservative, you're seen as some sort of oxymoron, same thing in Britain. And, of course, Neville Bonner experienced it in 67. Yeah, that's a really good point, Tom, and I do touch on some of those international examples in, in the book as well. Um, it's It certainly confronts assumptions, you know, if you do find yourself of a certain complexion um, and you're on the, on the centre-right side of politics, it makes it very kind of slippery around how, um, you know, the media commentators or even individuals or an opposing political party actually handles handles you or handles the things that you you kind of um, care about or speak up for and you know this is really just one of the examples about why I find you know Bonner's story just fascinating and also you make it very clear that Neville Bonner revered Sir Robert Menzies 
That's right, Tom. So, um, you know, if you just sort of go down the list really about, uh, pardon me, Robert Menzies' liberal statement of beliefs and, and Bonner's beliefs, um, they really just overlap almost near, um, you know, perfectly, you know, in terms of uh, respect for parliament and the rule of law. Um, you know, like Menzies, Bonner uh, was, a, was a fierce advocate for our established institutions. He called uh, Parliament the, counts, the nation's council of elders and he encouraged that, you know, he wanted more, he wanted more um, Indigenous Australians in, in the chamber and, and not less. And um, when you look at freedom of speech and, and religion, Bonner said that when coming to Canberra, his priorities were God, uh, to God in this rank order, nation, state, and then party, and as I touched on before, religion really was his path to assimilation and integration um, and, and building skills and being able to be a full participant in, in mainstream Australian society. But you just go down the list, Tom, and it's really quite, um, you know, quite uncanny really how Bonner's life matched up with a lot of those liberal principles in terms of, you know, choosing uh, your own way in life, protection from exploitation, um, and then also that um, individual initiative um, and that enterprise too. He, he, he believed, like Menzies, that a you know, sound fiscal management and a, and a humming economy um, kind of was a tide that lifted all boats and provided opportunities for people um, if they were willing to take them, regardless of, of complexion. So he revered Menzies. A Menzian liberal, yeah. And it just occurred to me, uh, and I know you know the answer to this, but there is one member of parliament today, either the House of Representatives or the Senate, who's actually met Sir Robert Menzies. Now, of course, Menzies was Prime Minister twice, from 39 to 41, and then 49 to 66. My colleague at CIS, Scott Prasser, has written a very good book on Sir Robert Menzies. Um, Menzies died in 1978, uh, but there is one member of parliament, the House and Senate, who's actually met Robert Menzies. And this is a detour away from Neville Bonner. But who's that member of parliament, Sean? Um, so, uh, look, I, I, it's Ken Wyatt, Tom, Ken Wyatt. Who's also Aboriginal. That's right. So uh, first Indigenous member of the House of Reps. So very fitting, actually. It is fitting, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. No, it's an amazing story. Now, listen, I thought this was quite interesting. Oh, by the way, just, just tell us a bit about yourself. Now, you're born in Papua New Guinea in the mid-1980s and you live in Queensland. Tell us more about your own upbringing. Yeah, sure, um, Tom. So, you know, there is a bit of a, a sort of mini biography within the pages of, of the book. So um, I am also mixed race. So I was born in Papua New Guinea, although I'm not Indigenous Australian. Um, but I really, um, again, was kind of drawn to... To Bonner's story because it's one that is about walking in two worlds and balancing different identities, which I think is something that a lot of us have to varying degrees. Um, so I studied at, at Griffith University in Brisbane. Um, I spent my sort of first years working for the Australian Aid Program in the South Pacific, and I've returned over the years to work in PNG in a range of kind of capacities, then also um, in Canberra, and, and I, I live in, in Queensland now and have worked with local, state, and again, federal government. So, Tom, I've sort of been around um, government and, I guess, politics, um, you know, uh, to know enough, I suppose, around generally the sketch or the broad outline of Bonner's story, but, um, you know, uh, not to a degree that I was at least until a few years ago about what um, kind of person he was and his upbringing and his trajectory as, as well. So this is my second second book. Um, and, yeah, as you know... The first, so the first I, book was on identity politics, also published by Connor Corp, correct? 
Correct, Tom. So that one's, it's called Winners Don't Cheat. So it came out a couple of years ago in, in 2018. And that really, I think, you know, I do have a, a chapter on, on, on race, you know, race and identity politics. And I actually touch on Bonner's um, story in that in only a number of pages, but really pulling out those same um, elements that I had in that policy magazine piece that you mentioned at the start around resilience, um, building skills, about being an individual and prospering in a, in a modern world, but finding the right place for culture and, and balancing those things too. So um, the chapter from memory is circumstances and race are, are no excuse. And that was certainly our honest philosophy and, and message. Individuality, liberalism, meritocracy, all good, but you also write about Neville Bonner understanding the tension, even chasm, between protest and compromise. I thought this was a key part of your book, um, Sean. You say that Bonner recognised it was better to work within the system and not in spite of it. This is a Bonner quote. If you want to beat the system, you do it in a sensible, quiet way. Yeah, that's right. A, a wonderful philosophy. And I think that's such a respectful way to look at existing institutions. And again, balancing that with the tension of change and, and, and culture as well. Um, there's a really interesting instance or a great story that I mentioned in the book from 1973, uh, where uh, Bonner's outside Parliament House and he sees a group of um, uh, pro-Indigenous protesters almost sort of running towards Parliament House to protest and he, he gets in between, um, you know, Parliament House and the protesters and he stops them and he, and he points to it and he goes, look, you know, that's, that's uh, our nation's Council of Elders up there. You wouldn't walk into an Indigenous Council of Elders and start demanding things left, right and centre. Uh, so why would you think that you could walk into that one and, and start demanding things? And it's really lovely, I think, um, you know, uh, instance of a few instances, I think, where he was trying to balance that tension or that respect for um, our existing institutions. And again, I think there's that that uh, wonderful um, element of uh, our national parliament being the nation's council of elders and respect for that and respect for institutions. And for his sin, Sean, he was called a black Judas, among other disgraceful insults. That's right. So, you know, this... Um, you know, being a, a member of the Liberal Party, being a conservative, uh, being in the public spotlight as well, um, and some of the things that he, he espoused really earned him an, an, an army of enemies at the time. Um, it put him on the sort of opposite side to a lot of the Indigenous rights uh, groups at the time, which were very much focused on, on politics. But Bonner's time at the One People of Australia League was actually focused on, on Indigenous welfare um, and not the sort of welfare that we sort of think about today, but... That, that sort of element of arming Indigenous Australians with skills, um, education and different norms and attitudes and priorities and behaviours to be able to, to integrate, but also um, be successful and compete in a, in a modern Australia. But yes, Tom. Yeah, self-evidently, Neville Bonner should be a household name in this country. Regrettably, he's not. Now, it has to be said, only one programme on the ABC, the public broadcaster, has uh, aired a programme dedicated to pay tribute to Neville Bonner to mark the 50th anniversary of his stint in Parliament. Um, but if, if Charles Perkins were the first Aboriginal Australian to serve in Parliament or a more left-wing activist Aboriginal Australian was the first Indigenous parliamentarian, I bet your bottom dollar, Sean, we know all about it on the ABC, seriously. 
Mm, no, that's right, Tom. And I do touch on this a little bit in the book that there, there is a suspicion, I think, and I think it's fairly um, founded that, you know, Bonner's legacy isn't kind of what it is because of his conservative philosophy or that he found himself on the centre-right side of politics, um, which is very unfair um, when you think think about it. And it's certainly um, one of the things that, you know, surprised me about his story was simply that, that um, he'd been camouflaged for so long and I do think that it is down to um, his philosophy and where he found himself on the political spectrum. Um, had he been a, um, you know, a member of the of the Labor Party, I suspect, or, you know, on the progressive side of politics, as you've touched on, um, I think there would be a lot more celebration or Absolutely. fanfare yeah. around his story. Indeed. So he was a senator from 71 right through to 83. Now, of course, Hawke, Bob Hawke defeats Malcolm Fraser in the 83 election. Now, Anthony Carr, uh, who's a regular listener to On Liberty, great to hear from you, Anthony. He asks, why did the Liberals fail to uh, put Neville Bonner in a winning position in 1983? He was relegated to third on the Queensland Senate ticket, so he lost his Senate position at the 1983. Now, I understand, I think you mentioned this, that both Malcolm Fraser, who was the Prime Minister at the time, the Treasurer at the time, John Howard, John Howard said this was a low moment for the Liberal Party, why on earth didn't the Queensland Liberal Party make sure that he was uh, re-elected in the Queensland Senate ticket? Yeah, fair enough. It's a great question there from Andrew. I think, um, you know, there's there are a couple of competing views. There are different perspectives. You know, you can still speak to people that were around at the party at the time. Um, there's a camp or a perspective that mentions that, um, you know, Bonner wasn't doing enough to court pre-selectors across the state as you know all um, politicians should do um there's is, that but, either, is it <laughs> no that's right exactly and um you know the other sort of element too um is that he was tactically unappealing and this is probably um one of the you know the elements that i think gets a lot of um that i cover a fair bit in the book or at least to a, to some degree um you know liberal party headquarters at the time felt that he wasn't tactically appealing to be able to put up in 1983, so therefore putting him to third um, uh, behind Kate Sullivan um, and um, McGibbon would actually, um, you know, be the right spot for him in terms of tactical outcomes and electoral, um, you know, electoral calculation. Um, so, yeah, it, it was kind of, there's different competing views and quite interestingly, actually, uh, right after the pre-selection, um, took place and Bonner was placed for third on the ticket. There was a re resolution actually put forward that um, that actually switched the order. So Kate Sullivan actually offered her place um, on the ticket to Bonner, uh, putting him at second, which would actually put him into a winnable position, um, and that was knocked back. So Bonner said that what what ended his his or what dropped him from the on the ticket to third was um, the um, powers that be, quote unquote, at, at headquarters. Big mistake. He was popular with the community across Australia. Um, he was the Australian of the Year in 1979, which, of course, you document. And the Labor government of Prime Minister Bob Hawke appointed Neville Bonner to a full-time role on, of all places, the ABC board. Tell us the story about Neville Bonner as a board member of the ABC with the then ABC managing director David Hill and their, their trips around the country. Fair enough. No, this is a, an interesting one. Um, and actually, yeah, so as you know, Tom, um, Hawke had actually called Bonner um, the night before the election and, you know, he, he recorded that he was 
I'm very sorry that he had to Bonner had to run as an independent, but he actually said to Bonner, look, if things don't work out, um, we'll 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 work something out for you. And so that's what he what that's what Hawke actually did. So as you know, he he appointed Bonner to uh, the ABC board. Bonner, of course, was the only, you know, just coming out of um, politics, the only full-time uh, board member. So he's often sent to the more rural or remote parts of Australia. Um, and on one trip with the managing director at the time, um, David Hill, um, Hill would come back to the offices and apparently said, I'm not going out with that so-and-so again. Everywhere you go, everyone, but he stops him in the street and um, comes up to him and and um, it takes ages to actually get anywhere. And, um, you know, but Bonner actually quickly um, qualified, you know, with, with his sort of characteristic modesty that that wasn't, you know, Hill wasn't saying that out of... Um, being cynical, but that was just kind of what Australia was and the good-natured um, support that Bonner had actually been able to, to carry throughout the time. And, and he actually noted too that uh, Bonner spent a lot of his time after leaving the Senate in 83 convincing people that he wasn't actually a senator anymore. He was wildly popular and, and people, you know, of all persuasions came up to him and kept calling him um, Senator Bonner. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And unfortunately, we lost Neville Bonner in 1999. One of his last public acts was at the 1998 Constitutional Convention at the old Parliament House, when he strongly defended the monarchy and opposed all the various Republican motions. That's interesting. That gets a mention in your book. But uh, I thought we'd conclude, Sean, because we're running out of time, and, and this has been a terrific discussion. Thanks so much for tuning in today. But uh, I'd like to conclude with something you say towards the end of your book, and it's a theme that we've already addressed, and that is identity politics. You make the point that uh, these days we are becoming accustomed to outbreaks of acute racial sensitivity, um, trigger warnings, microaggressions, safe spaces, uh, all these things. Final question, what do you think Neville Bonner today, 50 years ago since he came to the Senate, what would Neville Bonner make of identity politics? Yeah, so it's a great question, Tom. I think that he would be entirely suspicious of it. I think it'd be he'd think that it'd be rather terrible, given that um, all of the progress that had been made um, with reconciliation, um, not just at a, an institutional level, but among individuals, the sheer number of Indigenous Australians doing well and living within mainstream Australia and, again, prospering, um, he would find it very suspicious that um, identity politics had emerged. Um, you know, even just in the time that I've, you know, that policy magazine article that I wrote in 2013 and today, um, I sort of rarely talk about identity politics because it kind of wasn't exactly on the radar. And you can just see in the last sort of seven, eight years, it's really popped, mm. really popped up. And I think, again, Bonner would have been entirely suspicious um, about it. He had a really good, um, gave a really good um, quote upon receiving a um, honorary doctorate from Griffith University in 1993, where he said that, you know, a society that works best it worked when played like a piano, when the black and white keys are played together. And I thought that was just a wonderful Beautiful. kind of touching, touching um, tribute uh, to how Bonner's philosophy worked. Um, his integrationist and assimilationist philosophy, but a great antidote to, to modern identity politics, but a really great antidote um, to, um, or a great, um, I guess, endorsement for mainstream Australia and uh, living a good and decent life, which is what Bonner was, was very much about.
A very important message indeed, Sean. Thank you so much. Now, you're the biography, you're the biographer of this book on Neville Bonner. For those of you who are interested in the book, I encourage you to buy a copy. Just go to the Connor Court website, connorcourtpublishing.com.au. Sean, great to be with you again. And let's hope we can do this uh, in a real event once we uh, get over these lockdowns. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. And yeah, absolutely look forward to it. And um, that crowd behind you hopefully will be moving next time we uh, we see it. <laughs> Good on you, Sean. And thanks to all of you for tuning into On Liberty. Uh, Salvatore Babones will be back next week talking with Peter Jennings, the leading Australian strategic thinker. Thanks so much. <laughs>